Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joshua, and today I have Margaret Lincoln here with me to share with us some of the key insights and takeaways from her brand new book, London and the 17th Century, The Making of the World's Greatest City. Margaret, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you. Now, Margaret, you've straddled over the course of a very interesting career, the worlds of both academia, you spent some time at Goldsmith, and museum curation at the National Museum and Maritime Museum in Greenwich. Perhaps we could begin with a brief introduction of sorts. Um, could you tell us a bit about your journey as an historian um, and what sparked your interest in this field in the first place? Well, actually, I started out as a lecturer in English in the University of North Wales. And I morphed through various um, jobs to be a curator or head of research in the National Maritime Museum Greenwich. And subsequently, I've been writing history books so I, I've, I've changed subjects as well as careers, if you like. Um, but it's, it's been a journey, I think, that gives me a, um, a unique perspective on, on history because I, I come at texts in a slightly different way. I look at them sometimes as, as you might look at literature. So um, whether or not that's an asset, I don't know, but uh, it's how I do things. Um. You are, of course, known for your work mainly in maritime history. You've written a lot of books about maritime history. What drew you, shall we say, to step ashore um, to write a history of London proper? Well, I've always been fascinated by London. I've lived in London most of my adult life. And it's just got so many layers that when the opportunity came to, to do a history of 17th century London, I jumped at the chance because it's, it's a wonderful century. Um, it's got so many different interests. And I thought that although a lot of it is known, I thought I would be able to find some new aspects to it, which I hope I've done. And something quite endearing that I find about London is the fact that many aspects of its character, its architecture, the way it's been laid out in the main thoroughfares like Strand and Whitehall have endured through the centuries. I was looking at a map in your book um, of 17th century London and I can see many key features that, that persist to the present day. Do you think writing about these things that happened a good three to four centuries ago, do you think they feel as distant as, as one would imagine? I think if they don't feel distant, there's something wrong because the past is a very different place. But I've walked all around London while writing this book, you know, looking for these different sites and seeing how they would appear today. So you're right, because after the fire of London, um, people couldn't afford to put in place the wonderful, elegant town city that that was hoped for. They just rebuilt on the same old medieval street plan, more or less. So you still can almost experience what it would have been like to have been living in Pepys's time. Um, There are still some narrow streets that you can find yourself in. And Obviously, there are iconic um, buildings that you can still go and look at, like the Banqueting House um, or the Monument or Guildhall. So there's a surprising amount that has survived. You're right. 
And you talked a bit about your unique perspective as someone who, who started off teaching English. Do you think your time spent in London as a true Londoner um, has sort of shaped the way you've approached this particular work? I don't think anybody who wasn't born in London considers themselves a true Londoner. Um, and I was born in Bristol. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, you can appreciate London at many levels. And it's, um, it's a truly wonderful city. And I think it's because of the river running through it and because of the layers of history that you can uncover on any walk, really, that makes it so special. Um, and in your book, you've chosen to focus on the 17th century. Why in particular this, this time period? Well, I think London was at the crucible of events in the 17th century. Um, it is the most turbulent century in, in English-British history. Um, but uh, it's also one of the most important centuries, I think, for, for the future of the nation. And although we don't always realise it, certain things that were put in place in the 17th century are critical to um, to what happened afterwards. You know, the Bank of England, um, the increase in trade... Um, the scientific revolution, all these things happened in the 17th century, not least cutting off the king's head. So um, that's the century, I think, that although it's often neglected, really needs to be understood if you're going to understand how Britain progressed afterwards. And could you give us a, a brief introduction to the 17th century? What were the key events and milestones that defined its history? Well, at the beginning of the century, Queen Elizabeth I dies, and um, we get the Scottish King James who, who takes over. Um, but the really big thing that everybody remembers, of course, is the Civil Wars. Um, you know, and that, that famous line in, in 1066 and all that, that the Cavaliers were wrong but romantic and the Puritans were right but repulsive, um, which has a glimmer of truth in it, I think. Um, and after that, after we've uh, executed the king, um, there's a long period of uh, tumult, really, until, until it settles down with the restoration. And even then, there are wars with the Dutch. Um, and it's amazing that in this, in this period when you get the, the Great Fire of London, when four-fifths of the city burned down, and the plague of London, when a quarter of the population dies, um, that trade is so strong in London that, um, that actually uh, the, it helps to pull the country out of this terrible mire and, and make sure that come the 18th century, it's well-placed to become the world's greatest city, which is um, something you wouldn't have predicted, I think, if you lived in that era. Um, and I think... You know, I was very conscious when writing the book that it would be very easy to write this story as if, you know, it, it's um, it's a story of British greatness. You know, at the end of the century, everything's poised to be wonderful. But I'd, I think if you were living in that period, you wouldn't have known. You might have hoped, but I think you would have been very confused and very defensive and very anxious most of the time. Which is probably why people still continue to believe in things like magic, you know. It didn't die out with the with with the scientific revolution. We'll have to pick up on that because I think I think magic was something very interesting um, that you wrote a chapter on in the book. But you talked a bit about 
what it was like to live in 17th century London. I can't imagine, given the disease and the plague and the smallpox and the state of sanitation, that it, I can't imagine that it could have been a, you know, a very pleasant experience, could it? No, it, it wouldn't have been very pleasant. I mean, you would have had animals butchered in the streets, although mostly around Smithfield, you would have had pigs scavenging in the gutters. Um, you know, there were diseases that nobody could do anything about. Um, most of the remedies that people had passed down to them in household manuals were perfectly useless. Um, and it was very difficult to stay clean not least because it, it was very polluted. People were burning sea coal to keep warm and to cook and in factories. Um, and, you know, uh, John Evelyn, the diarist, writes that if people went to swim in the river, to, to wash in the river, they would emerge with a kind of black film over their skins, you know. Um, even the vegetables in the field were supposed to taste of smoke and coal. So it's Perhaps he was being over fastidious, but but even so, it, it gives a picture of um, real hardship, I think. Although, of course, the rich had wonderful silks and lace and perfumes and spices. I think the poor people were, were in a dreadful condition. Do you think this class divide and income inequality is in part a, a function of, of trade and, and London's position within this global trade? Well, I think I think there were always huge social inequalities in London, um, which at the beginning of the century, the livery companies did a great deal to alleviate. I mean, it, it was in their interest to to control the poor with charity. And the livery companies did uh, not only help their members, they doled out cheap corn and stuff to to uh, poorer members of society. That tended to break down later in the century because the livery companies uh, became very poor. You know, after the Great Fire, they had to build up, build up their halls again, and they were in debt. Um, by the end of the century, there was a kind of primitive workhouse system, but it was it was kind of postcode lottery. It depended on which part of London you lived in as to how how generous it was. So I think um, it's no wonder that. Uh, crime increased and things became more dangerous towards the end of the century. I mean, one um, odd fact that kind of stuck in my mind is that when all the rich merchants headed off to their country estate at the weekend, as, as they were going in their carriages, you know, towards the fields, one thing that they used to have to do was, it, was fight off the highwaymen. You know, there'd be an exchange of gunfire. Uh, you can't really imagine it as they, as they, as they took off to West London or, or whatever, but... Um, They'd have to exchange gunfire with with um, highwaymen on the way, and of course many of the highwaymen were actually women, which again isn't isn't always realised. You, you mentioned something interesting just now about the livery companies and and how they loomed large in the history of London. And of course, we're talking here about the city of London. Um, now, the city of London is traditionally has tr- traditionally been this financial centre of England. It's home to so many archaic political institutions, you know, the office of the Lord Mayor, for instance, that still exists today. Could you tell us a bit about its history and why so many of these institutions, you know, persist till the present day? Well, the great thing about the city of London, as opposed to the the city that was much larger, is that it had its own charter. And it, it guarded these rights from the crown from, from you know, medieval days and before. Um, so it 
it believed that it had a certain independence, which it defended um, with great enthusiasm. And every year there be um, when the Lord Mayor was um, give, when, when he took up office, there'd be this procession, this river procession that then continued back from Westminster through the city. And this was an opportunity to um, explain to people what their civic rights were. I mean, it was it was a, a celebration of the fact that London as a city was separate and had its own rights and freedoms. And within London, um, a lot of the citizens actually had a, a role in governing the city so that there was a kind of democratic tradition in London that set it apart and which was fiercely guarded. Um, later, in Charles II's time, it lost this charter for a while, which was a, a, um, a point that was fiercely contended at the time. Um, and all the different livery companies had their own members and their own feast days and their own livery halls. And you're right, they exist to this day, but of course they're mostly um, charitable organisations now. They don't have the same active role in in um, governing their trades that they once had. But of course, as the 17th century rolled on, we saw you know, a population boom and we saw similarly the geographical limits of London being expanded to include Westminster and Southwark, places that we now associate with London. Um, how did this expansion work and how do you chart its growth over the 17th century? Well, you're absolutely right. In the book, there are two maps, you know, showing London as it was in 1600 and London as it was in 1700. And at the beginning of the century, uh, the population was about 200,000, whereas by the end, it had more than doubled. It was like half a million. And you're absolutely right. There were two cities at the beginning, London and Westminster, where the court was, um, joined by the Strand. And by the end of the period, London had expanded so much that these two cities were effectively one. And, and now, of course, we think of Southwark on the South Bank as poem part of London. And, well, Greater London is huge. But the, the amazing thing is, is that in some of the city parishes, um, they were more crowded then, three times more crowded then than they are today. Um, so it was an incredibly populous place, even though you could walk from one side of the city to the other in an hour or so. It was very, very busy. Um, and as I said earlier, very polluted and very dirty. Um, so in order to cope with all these new people, there was an enormous amount of infilling. People built in their yards, they subdivided houses into tenements. Um, that's another reason why, uh, you know, the plague took off. People were just pestered together, you know, in, in very small houses. Or if the houses were big, there were too many people in them. And... Why was it the case that there was, you know, this state of overpopulation in London? Was it a matter of, you know, increased fertility or was London attracting immigrants from outside, you know, the confines of the city and England? No, you're, you're quite right. It wasn't a, a fact that people were having more children. In fact, child mortality was dreadfully high. Um, the only way that London could keep going was from immigration from other counties in, in England uh, because wages were could be as much as 50% higher in London. So it attracted huge numbers of people from outside counties. And also people 
valued an apprenticeship in London. I mean, we mentioned the livery companies earlier. London was the place to come and learn a trade. And quite wealthy people would send their sons to London so that actually about 10, 15% of all the apprentices in England were in London. You have to imagine that there was this whole cadre of very young people, difficult to control, not in their homes, up to no good, uh, rioting and, um, you know, living away from their parents. And several thousand of them, you know. Um, so it made a difference to the way that London felt and behaved, you know, how London has behaved. And the other thing that accounted for the enormous increase in population, of course, is immigration from abroad, because a lot of Protestant refugees from Flanders and from uh, France came to to London fleeing religious persecution. As much as 25,000 French people lived in London by the end of the century. That's about 5%. So it's, it's a goodly number. I assume many of the people who, who came to London came in search of the coveted freedom of the city. Am I, am I right? Well, they came to London for a better life. People always did. And of course, London had such a lure anyway. I mean, people wanted to see London. I mean, this was your capital city. You wanted to see it before you died. I mean, um, whether or not they came for the freedom, uh, i.e. The, the freedom to, to practice a particular trade, I'm not certain because the, the different livery companies uh, guarded this privilege terribly carefully and didn't always want to give it to um, the French Huguenots um, and other immigrants from overseas, um, which is why a lot of these immigrants actually settled in the suburbs where the city didn't have the same kind of uh, regulation and they practiced their trade from the suburbs where they didn't need to, ha to have citizens' rights. Now, looking beyond the city, one defining geographical feature of London, as you mentioned earlier, was its rivers. We have, for instance, the Thames, and, and, and to a lesser extent in the 17th century, the River Fleet. How important were London's rivers in shaping its economy, its society, its culture? Well, the tremendous thing about London is that it did have the Thames running through it. I mean, um, it was 17 miles or so inland, but... Um, merchant vessels could come right up to the centre. I mean, this was the amazing thing. The river fleet was just a little better than a sewer, actually. Um, <laughs> so people threw their rubbish into it, and the rubbish ended up in the Thames, which was unfortunate because that's where a lot of the drinking water came from. But um, the Thames as a, as a tidal river for trade, that was the, that was the important thing. Um, so, of course, um, you know, you get shipbuilding and ship repair works and glass factories and beer factories, etc., beer works um, growing up along, along the banks of the Thames. And this meant that um, London became terribly prosperous. And the bigger London got, the more it was a market for all these imports that were coming in from overseas, like sugar and spices and silks. Um, so it, it became a kind of self-perpetuating thing, that the more it traded, the bigger it got, and the bigger it got, the more it was a market for trade. Why do you think, despite being so far inland, um, people were willing to travel all the way into London to carry out their trade? Uh, well, I think, I think because um, this was where you could make money. This was where 
the court was. It would buy luxury goods. Um, so if you were importing spices, you, you would be sure to sell it to rich people. Um, if you were manufacturing silk, there was a, a, a market again for rich people. And people who had country estates would come to London to be measured up for fine clothes. This was where the uh, fashions were. It's London that set the trend. So during the uh, plague, when the court left London, um, it was kind of devastating because a lot of tradesmen went went bankrupt because the, the market that for fine clothes wasn't there for a year or so, you know. Um, London had all these different things, the court, the law courts, merchants, manufacturers, um, and shipping. And I suppose, you know, it still is the case that, that London has um, uh, a sort of hold over the rest of the country. It, it's, it's disproportionate, really, the, the, the draw that London has. We've never managed to get out of that, that state of affairs, really. But nonetheless, as we were talking about earlier, it wasn't, it wasn't all Greek living in London in the 17th century. You start the book, of course, talking about the plague, uh, the plague of 1603 to 1605. Um, and then later on in the mid-1660s, we see the Great Plague of London strike around the same time as the Great Fire of London. And your book is just peppered with detail of other diseases and ailments. Smallpox, for example, was, was endemic, if I'm not wrong, in London. How bad was plague, and more generally, how was the state of healthcare in London at that time? So, well, I don't think there was any, any health care to speak of. <laughs> it was a, a terrible state of affairs. I mean, one of, one of the reasons why um, I wanted to do the whole century um, is to show that although people remember the plague of 1665, this was just one pretty bad example. I mean, every 20 years or so, London saw a major outbreak of plague, which, which was endemic. So... When James I came to the throne after Elizabeth died in 1603, he couldn't have the normal um, coronation ceremony straight away because of plague. And when Charles I took over um, and became king, he couldn't have the normal um, procession through the city either because of plague. Um, and in, in 1625, I think there were about 35,000 deaths. So, you know, it, it's, um, it's always been... Um, a feature of, of London life in the 17th century. And it didn't die out completely either with the fire of London, as, as you often read. There were isolated cases of plague afterwards. So in terms of what you could do for your health, well, you could you could try home remedies, um, which apart from cloves, the toothache, seemed to have been useless. Um, there was very... No, the only thing you could do was to drink a lot, which is why people, I think, were mostly drunk most of the time. People did drink an awful amount, um, which didn't make them terribly polite and I think contributed to, to the, the violence in London um, because the, the water wasn't particularly safe to drink, although there was a water supply from the, the New River in this era. Um and so people drank weak beer. But, you know, if you keep drinking weak beer, it has its effect. I, I found something interesting while reading your book. You talk about um, James I's coronation procession, which was delayed to March 1604. And you say the city's water conduits ran with wine. Was this a, a common occurrence? 
Well, only on special occasions. <laughs> it wasn't very common. But for coronations and for restorations, um, you know, the, the city fathers would would pay for, for wine to be put into the fountains. Uh, so were people more drunk even than usual. I'm sure this must have caused a lot of problems for the for the authorities. Well, it, it did. I mean, London had its own militia. They were called the trained bands. And the officers of this militia were, were more or less professional. They were trained by the um, the armourers. But, but people volunteered to, to, to drill on Sundays in the open fields. And um, the trained bands could be put, called up in, in times of crisis. But, of course, there was no police force. Um, so, you know, the city authorities were meant to keep order in the city, which is why the suburbs were more lawless, because they, they couldn't really extend their jurisdiction that far. Now, let's talk about another momentous event that's, um, I think, etched into the collective memory of Londoners, you know, the Great Fire of London, 1666, that coincided, unfortunately, with the, with the outbreak of the Great Plague. Could you tell us a bit more about what caused this fire in the first place and why it was able to wreak havoc in the way it did? Well, it was a cluster of circumstances, really. I mean, the fire started in the dead of night. So, you know, people had gone to sleep quite late because it was the end of the working week and they were in their first dead sleep when the fire started in a, in Pudding Lane in a baker's premises where the fire had not been properly raked out before the family went to bed. So when people realised there was a fire, you know, they, they woke up with a start and they could just about save themselves and they hadn't taken any precautions. And then they called the mayor um, who came to look at it. But fire was a very common occurrence in London because all the buildings were made of wood and they were very close together. And he didn't know quite what to do, because if he ordered the buildings to be pulled down, most of the buildings in the area were rented. So, you know, he thought to himself, well, should I should I contact the owners before I pull all these buildings down to make a fire break? And in the end, he chickened out and famously said he thought a woman could piss it out and he went back to bed. Um, he was quite wrong, of course, because there was a strong wind blowing. And so very soon the fire spread right across London. And, you know, it's Pepys's diary that very famously gives descriptions of how, you know, the fluttering pigeons burnt their feathers as they soared above London. And, and you know, it raged for three, four days and burnt three quarters of the city down. And it was absolutely devastating. Um, and I think the only saving grace about the fire is that contrary to the plague um, when all the rich people just fled the city. When it came to the fire, everybody pulled together. I mean, the king and his brother, the Duke of York, you know, helped fight the fire in the streets. And people did begin to feel more or less that they were all in it together. Although anybody who was a stranger, any foreigner, was immediately blamed for it. Um, because you know, people were devastated. You know, absolutely devastated, and and you always blame somebody else. Somebody was actually executed for it. He stupidly confessed. He was probably insane, um, but you know because he seemed to want to confess, people took his life. But it wasn't him. They already knew that it had started in Pudding Lane. And let's not forget that the Great Fire occurred at a time when 
London was already grappling, as we talked about earlier, with the Great Plague. How did authorities go about tackling these these twin crises and, and rebuilding London? Well, I think a lot has to be put down to the resilience of Londoners, actually. I mean, they did, within six years, rebuild their city, more or less, which is a phenomenal effort. Um, of course, the king did do, uh, he did act fairly quickly. I mean, he, not only did he act with his brother to make fire breaks and save what he could of the city, when the uh, dispossessed camped just outside the city in Moorfields, he did distribute ship's biscuits so they didn't starve. He did allow them to lease the land for seven years so they could build houses there while they were waiting to rebuild their old properties. He did um, issue building regulations, which said that, you know, you could no longer build in this stupid way with wood, overhanging narrow streets. You had to have brick houses and make it safer. Of course, that only applied in the city. It didn't apply elsewhere. But um, people did, by and large, follow these regulations because it was they, they found out that it was actually cheaper to build in this way. Um, you know, they sort of built in a sort of regimented way so everything was the same and it turned out to be cheaper. Um, so I think there's a combination of circumstances really which uh, enabled them to, to rebuild the city so quickly. Um, not least because they needed to earn money. So they wanted to start trading again. They couldn't just sit there and twiddle their thumbs and wait for the insurance money to come through. In fact, there was no insurance, of course. That started later. And of course, you talk about the relationship between the monarchy and Londoners. Um, these two power centres of England have had, you know, a famously strained relationship. Um, you know, the 17th century was no exception. Could you tell us a bit more about the relationship between crown and city um, during this time period? Well, I think this is what really, um, for me, makes the century so crucial that is in this period that, that ordinary citizens establish their rights. I know, I know there's the Magna Carta and everything, but um, it's the Bill of Rights in the 17th century that, that make the difference, I think, um, which meant that you could know that the king could no longer have absolute power. All the way through the century, um, you know, the king was wanting to, if he could, rule without parliament, um, you know, extract taxes without parliamentary consent, um, have his own view of things. And by the end of the century, this was no longer the case. Parliament was the important thing. And that's something that, you know, we benefit from enormously and has to be continually fought for, I think. So that's why I think it's, it's, it's really important that people understand this century and where parliamentary rights come from and how hard people had to fight for them. Uh, because we kind of take it for granted today, but we shouldn't. And what was the relationship speci specifically between the Crown and the general London population? Were they well received? Well, it depended on how popular the Crown was at the time. Um, I mean, Londoners always loved a good procession. So if... if um, if the king um, was was uh, proceeding through London or um, coming back for the restoration, all these processions and coronations were, were usually well received. Um, the only time they had to be careful was if they married a Catholic princess because Londoners were fiercely Protestant 
didn't like Catholics. And you tend to find that whenever there's um, a coronation or a, a marriage with a Catholic princess, they go by water, uh, which is a lot safer than riding in procession through the narrow streets of London. So it's, it's an interesting contrast. And moving towards the mid-century, we come to, of course, the Civil War. And that was an enormous event, not just in the history of London, but in the history of England. What was London's role in it all? Well, it was crucial because anybody who controlled London controlled the bulk of the wealth and the um, the bulk of the military strength, actually, of, of the country. Um, so there were no fixed battles in London itself. But London was important to um, the outcome of the civil wars. Um, and if in leaving London... Um, at the beginning of the conflict, Charles I made a, a critical error because he left the wealth of London and its military strength to Parliament, um, which he never really recovered from. Um, and he didn't manage to retake London either. He tried. Um, but there was this kind of standoff at Turnham Green when all London's trained bands and some more um, men who joined as well, about 24,000 people marched out to Turnham Green and sort of faced Charles I's troops. And Charles took one look at this enormous um, cohort of men and wasn't quite sure that he could actually win the battle. So he just turned around and left, um, which was treated as a great victory by, by the Londoners, although actually they hadn't fought at all. Um, and the whole outing turned into a kind of picnic because the women of London had sent out, you know, cheese and bread and wine after the after the men. They just enjoyed that. But um, I think it was a big mistake on Charles's part not not to stay in London. And as the Commonwealth and the Protectorate rolls around, did, did these events and the introduction of you know Republican values have a material effect on the lives and the standards of living of Londoners? Well, everybody uh, remembers that Cromwell is supposed to have shut down all the theatres. In fact, he never did. And he was, um, or at least he never managed to do it completely. And he's supposed to have done away with Christmas. And there were soldiers, you know, confiscating people's Christmas dinners. Um, again, I think that was a partial success because of the, although he told all the shopkeepers to open their shops on Christmas Day, some still closed it. Um there wasn't, it would be unfair to say it was a military dictatorship, it wasn't, but certainly the soldiers were a, a sort of visible presence on the streets. And um, it wasn't always um, easy for Londoners because these soldiers were um, billeted in various uh, houses and there were often conflicts and, um, you know, the sheer noise of having soldiers drill next to you and... Um, practice arms next to you was was disconcerting, I think. It was obvious that London was ruled by the strength of the army and, and, and in Cromwell's time, which nobody liked, which is why the Bill of Rights insisted that there would be no standing army in England. Um, it, it was loathed at the time. Um, and we, we started and we end this um, period of this interruption with executions. Executions appear to be quite commonplace in London. Charles I was famously beheaded. And in your book, we include 
quite a harrowing account of the botched execution of the Duke of Monmouth, if I'm not wrong, under the reign of James II. Was London the site of many executions? Well, yes. I mean, there were quite a few. I mean, you'd be unlucky if you missed them completely in your lifetime. Um, I mean, there were gory affairs, especially, you know, when people were hung, drawn and quartered for treason and their limbs were placed in various places around London and their heads were stuck on the top of London Bridge. Um, No, it would have been awful. And women, of course, could still be burnt at the stake. And they weren't always... um, strangled first they could be burnt live even for things like poisoning their husbands because it was deemed treason to um, do that to a man because women were understood to be inferior to men intellectually and um, physically I mean they they were their husband's property and if they um, if they killed their husbands they were guilty of a terrible crime and they could be burnt at the stake um, so it was very awful, actually, very brutal executions. And you're right, when the Duke of Monmouth was executed, um, the executioner turned out to be pretty useless, um, you know, and had to resort to a knife to hack off his neck. So it, it was not, not very good. Um, I think people could easily have been traumatized by these, these sites, actually if they weren't brutalized altogether. I think, I think as we've established quite clearly over the course of this conversation, it, it certainly wasn't you know, a great experience living in London in the 17th century. And as you said, that might explain why magic had such an appeal among Londoners. Could, you, could we just loop back to that and, and talk a bit about what, what was the relationship between London and, and magic? Well, magic was a way of explaining things that otherwise you couldn't quite cope with. So quite mundane things even, like childbirth or um, the fact that you your, your animals might have died or your children were suffering, all these things that there wasn't an obvious explanation for, people could resort to magic. Or if you had some kind of illness that you, you couldn't cure in any other way. Um, so... It was bizarre, actually. People used to make um, magic bottles for things like urine and nail clippings and and plant them, you know, in order to exercise whatever uh, spirit had taken you over. Um, And people were very worried about evil spirits entering their homes so that they would... We we still use horseshoes, but they would pin up horseshoes and they would put shoes up the chimney or behind panelling, you know, um, all these superstitious things to ward off evil spirits. Um, And although these practices died out, um, I think they didn't ever die out completely. I mean, the Royal Society introduced much more scientific way of thinking, but um, they didn't really go head to head with magic they just didn't talk about magic and so by default magic became something you didn't really say you believed in but of course a lot of the um, members of the royal society still believed in alchemy and things like that Um, so it never really died out completely and people are still superstitious today of course so there's something in our psyche that makes us a little bit superstitious it's it's very odd um, 
thinking about London as this city of contradictions because you see that magic has such an appeal, but at the same time, London was also the center of many scientific discoveries. You've dedicated an entire chapter to talking about London's relationship with science, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, it, partly it was trade that, that helped to drive it because Charles II really wanted to increase trade in his navy, and he knew he would have to improve navigation. Um, he wanted to chart the heavens so that sailors could navigate across the globe. He wanted to find a better way of sheathing his warships so that the, the you know tropical worms didn't bore through the planks of, of his ships. Um, and people just wanted to understand science. I think it was, it might have been a difficult period full of hardship and plagues and fires and disease, but um, people did have this sense of optimism, I think, that if they looked very carefully and if they thought very carefully about things and, and worked from observation, they would find um, the explanation. You know, it could actually be discovered. Um, and this is why they, they experimented with air pumps and poisons and, you know, the circulation and blood transfusions. Um, they thought that people would progress and understand the world around them. Um, so it wasn't all doom and gloom. Um, and you could, you could see that, you know, every year people were improving in terms of trade and the exports and imports. So I think people realized that they'd come through a really difficult time, but they were, at the end of the day, fairly optimistic that things would get better. And of course, speaking of optimism, you've subtitled your book, Making of The Making of the World's Greatest City. And I think you see it's in the 17th century that the building blocks of this, um, you know, this revolution that would make London the world's greatest city were, were first laid. In what ways did the 17th century forge the London that we see today? Well, it's forged it because um, it had the financial revolution. So that meant that we could afford to um, run up a national debt. That's proved very useful, certainly at the moment. Um, so um, it's all these institutions in terms of uh, a scientific revolution, a financial revolution, a political revolution, and increasing trade were started in the 17th century, or at least they, they took off in the 17th century. Um, and that's the, the building blocks that enabled London to become the greatest city, certainly in Europe, perhaps not in the world at the time, but it was certainly Europe's greatest city. Um, and it's that, I think, that we are still benefiting from. Of course, as you alluded to earlier, the London that we have today is very different from the one you've written about in the 17th century. How would you describe the relationship between present-day London and its 17th century history? Well, that's that's very hard. I mean, because I don't think necessarily people will be aware of it. Um, you know, when you look around London, you're more likely to notice um, 18th century survivals. But, but St. Paul's was... Uh, rebuilt in the 17th century, and that's a great icon of, of the spirit of London, I think. Um, and one of the things I end the book on is the fact that people of the time didn't always knew, know where, the, where things were going to end up or what the future would be, but they took great solace in, in looking at the extent of London and the riverscape from a height. 
they would climb up St. Paul's and they would look down and say, wow, look at that. Or they would climb the hills of Greenwich and look at the river and the extent of the city ahead of them. And I think that's what you kind of need in a way, a perspective, a kind of height and a distance to be able to see the significance of things. Um, so I, I thought that was kind of interesting that, that a number of descriptions of London are often from a, from a height uh, to get some kind of perspective on, on the site below you. Um, I don't really know what kind of relationship London at present has with the 17th century, to be honest. But I hope that the book makes people see that it is actually a really important century, as well as a turbulent one, that we need to look at again. And I suppose the kind of optimism that you talk about, you know, these views about the future and looking at London from the perspective of, you know, height, um, this kind of optimism is much needed in times like this. Well, it is. We should all go climb a hill. <laughs> I mean, that's the only solution. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we've taken up quite enough of your time today, Margaret. We've had a very nice conversation about the history of London. Um, and I'd like to end off the interview with just one final question. If you could interview someone for their new book in history, who would that be? Well, I was really impressed by David Abulafia's book, The Boundless Sea, because I found it difficult enough just to encompass one century. And he encompasses, you know, many, many, many centuries and the whole world. And if I had a, the opportunity, I would love to be able to ask him how on earth he managed to do that and, and what the difficulties were uh, in writing the book and how he came to produce something that is so readable and so humorous at the same time as being so illuminating. Oh, yes, you're absolutely right. It's a wonderful book. Um, and I did have a conversation with David, incidentally, about this particular book, The Boundless Sea, on the New Books Network. Um, it should be out by the time our podcast is out, so listeners can keep an eye out for that. But yes, um, David has done an excellent job of weaving together the disparate threads of history um, when talking about you know, the history of our oceans. He's an excellent writer, and as are you. I think you've done an excellent job writing a history of London. It's not easy. Um, many people think they know a great deal about London, um, but you actually do, and you've peppered this this narrative with tiny tidbits of information about the 17th century that many of us wouldn't know. It was a very interesting read. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Margaret, for your time today. It's been a very enjoyable conversation, and you on your part have been a very gracious guest. Uh, we look forward to having you on the podcast again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, on that note, thanks for your time, and thank you for listening to this episode of New Books in History. Thank you.